Becoming a mum is one of life's great joys. For many mums in Australia, preparing for the baby's arrival often meant baby showers, maternal wear shopping and prenatal classes. And of course, having your partner by your side during health visits and while giving birth. But in this pandemic world, that journey to motherhood looks very different. It's been a strange and lonely experience for many women. A lot of the restrictions meant that women had to attend appointments by themselves, ultrasound appointments by themselves. And those really exciting times during a pregnancy, you know, taking a partner along to see the ultrasound, but they weren't able to do that. That's the Burnett Institute's Dr Elise Wilson. We know that having a newborn can be very isolating. There's big emotions and uncertainties that come with this life-changing moment. Now add in physical distancing and health staff wearing PPE gear. Many women in Australia have felt a sense of grief being separated from their support network and their loved ones. But in some countries, even basic maternal care is hard to come by. In countries like Fiji, in the most recent lockdown in their country, have really struggled to close the hospital. They've had to open a new maternity unit, and unit would be a generous term, but a couple of rooms down the side of the hospital have now become the labour ward, and they've had to move all of their staff. There's no doubt that responding to COVID-19 has come at the cost of essential health services for many women and newborns all around the world. Burnett's Associate Professor Josh Vogel says now is the time to improve health for pregnant women and their bubs. There's never been a more important time to focus on how to improve the health of pregnant women and newborns. And the good news is we're starting to see some really positive changes with a shake-up of age-old systems and ways of doing things. Hospitals are really difficult to shift. They're these big ships, hard to turn around. In March, we changed antenatal care in two weeks. This is How Science Matters, a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers you'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute. He's also a microbiologist, malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, motherhood in a time of pandemic. The data is getting pretty clear that being vaccinated in pregnancy is a safe thing. We have guidelines in Australia saying you should get vaccinated. It doesn't matter at what stage in your pregnancy. It's all going to be good. That's Professor Caroline Homer, a leading midwifery researcher and maternal and newborn health expert at Burnett Institute. She's been closely watching how the pandemic has affected new mums. It's been a stressful experience for some and rewarding for others. So what do we know about its impact? I think becoming a mother in COVID time has been an extraordinary experience for women, partners, families, grandparents, siblings. Babies haven't stopped being born during the pandemic. In Australia, we have 300,000 babies born a year. And actually, every single one of those babies has been impacted. 
because our lives have been impacted. So the indirect effects of COVID have seeped into every part of maternity care, infected the midwives, the doctors, the hospitals, but most importantly, really impacted on the women's experiences and their relationship with those early weeks and times of being pregnant and then those early weeks of having a baby. Before COVID, there were so many support systems. People used to go to antenatal classes. Everyone joined in the process. Everyone felt much more supported. I can imagine it was such an isolating time for so many women. Yeah, and lots of women have told us that. Suddenly, their antenatal care stopped, essentially face-to-face. It went online. And while we say video conferencing, actually most of the hospitals in this country are not set up to do video conferencing, so it was on the phone. And while in the workplace we've gone on to Zoom and Teams and all sorts of clever technologies, in hospitals it's not like that. So it is a phone call. And there's a lot of antenatal care you can't do in a phone call. Even showing women how to measure their tummy to see if their baby's growing That's a kind of midwifery skill and obstetric skill, and we had to teach women how to do it. And that's scary as well. Women were going to pharmacies to buy blood pressure machines so that they could take their own blood pressure and write that down on a piece of paper and tell the midwife when they rang. So those sorts of bits of care that would be normal all stopped or changed. And, yeah, the social support from... Even people's grandmothers or mothers visiting, you know, we live in a very multicultural society in Australia and many of the women that I've seen over this last year normally would have their mother come from India or China or England or New Zealand even to be with them in these early months and that all stopped. So not only did their care provision really change, but their social support network really changed. Has there been a story or personal insight from a mum that has just stayed with you through this? Yeah, so we've been doing a study called Cocoon, which is a global study, particularly looking around perinatal loss around COVID time. I have talked with a woman who was doing her normal antenatal care, and sadly it was on the phone for the most part, but she went in for her ultrasound. And at that time, In the state she was in, lockdown meant she couldn't take her partner. So mostly ultrasounds, they're exciting things. You get to see the baby's heartbeat and the baby moving and the ultrasound people are all really excited and measure the baby. And her baby was still with no heartbeat. And clearly her baby had died. And to do that on her own, she said she just wanted to sob And she did. But her ultrasonographer was all in PPE and empathetic and kind. But she just wanted a big hug and she wanted her partner. And then she got her partner on the phone on FaceTime, which was good in one level. But imagine for him, out in the car park he was, hearing that his baby had died and his partner's inside in the ultrasound room and he can't get in there and she wasn't ready to come out. And that really broke my heart, actually, hearing that story, that we really messed up for that family. Surely we could have done better. Couldn't have been that hard to have done a better thing. And knowing that, yes, most ultrasounds, 99% of ultrasounds are going to be gorgeous, but wouldn't we like to have joy as well? So couldn't we have him in for the joy? But the percent that it's really bad news, you do not want women to be on their own. It's just inhumane. So we have to make that better. 
Even in the midst of a pandemic, we have to make that better. And will we have to wait until these babies of today are teenagers or whatever to know what the impact was? Or are we getting some indication now as to what the downsides in sticking to the Australian context? So, yes, as you know, lots of things will have to be washed out over time. But very early on in the pandemic, there were concerns from other high-income countries about changes in maternity services. And so increased stillbirth rates, decreased prematurity, which is really interesting, and increased mental health, social and emotional issues. So some of those we can work out now. I think the mental health issues and the kind of social and emotional, I don't like to use the word bonding, but that sort of human connection around growing a family, those early weeks and months are so important to have all your people around you. And that's going to be different. Caroline, you've had such a rich history as a midwife, as a researcher, somebody who works closely with the WHO and other esteemed organisations. Have you been surprised at the change that's come finally into maternal health, that COVID actually has been a chance to make change? I know that Years ago, they said we'd never be working from home. There were managers who said you can't work from home. And come March in Australia, that had to be the reality. What's been the reality of maternal and child health at a global level that you've seen as a remarkable change you didn't expect? So there's some good things from COVID, I'd have to say, in all the services. In Australia, we've basically done antenatal care the same forever. It was invented in 1929. In England, we've kind of done the same eight antenatal visits, the same thing, your blood pressure, your tummy check, blah, blah, blah. And lots of research has been done along the way to try and change that. But hospitals are really difficult to shift. They're these big ships, hard to turn around. In March, we changed antenatal care in two weeks in almost every hospital in this country to flexible telehealth. We rearranged the way the ultrasound happened so it could happen at the same time as a visit rather than on a separate day to reduce traffic. We changed antenatal education, put it on Zoom. We did all this stuff really fast. Now we've got to work out which bits to take back and the unravelling. And how much of that was surprising that when people said it couldn't happen, would never happen? Very surprising. I mean, I'll give you one example. At Burnett, we do a lot of training of midwives in the Asia-Pacific region. So we've got this faculty development program that we invented a couple of years ago to upskill the midwives working in schools across the region. And so we had a big planning. We were going to go to Bangkok in the middle of 2020 and do a train-the-trainer with two midwives from every country and bring them all together. And it was all going to be great. Anyway, that all didn't happen. And so we thought, let's do it on Zoom And everyone said, you can't. I mean, this is going from basically Iran to Papua New Guinea, that region, 22 countries. We can't do it on Zoom. It's too hard. I went, oh, let's have a go. So I have this amazing midwife, Rachel Smith, who works with us. And we've done now four modules. We have last count 100 midwives online, some of them with more than one in the room. They do this training. They listen to the podcast. They come every week for an online session. We break them into small groups. They talk to each other. They've got WhatsApp groups in their language. I never would have been brave enough to do it. Reaching midwives in remote areas, poorer countries 
and in places that are difficult to get to, this has been one of the great pandemic success stories for maternal health. It's confirmation of what can be achieved with out-of-the-box thinking. And it's already having benefits for our closest neighbours across the Pacific. It's now rolling out across the Pacific in countries that are actually really hard to get to. So to go to Kiribati, it's basically a four-day trip because you've got to go via somewhere else and via somewhere else. And so it's quite hard to get to and nobody goes there for very long. Nui, Tokelau, little places, don't have many staff. They are joining online training and doing this feedback, working in a workbook. There's a Facebook site. It's extraordinary, the enthusiasm the nonsense that we did all these years around, oh, they couldn't do online training because it's a low-income country and they don't have very good internet. Well, they don't, but they still do it. So it sounds like some actually really exciting possibilities to use the shake-up from the pandemic to change things that were always there. I'm certainly no expert in this area, but having been at the Burnett long enough, I've never seen a an area in global health with the starkest difference between the haves and the have-nots, especially of a safe pregnancy. Can you paint that picture a bit for us as to just how stark a difference it is, how big the challenge is? We've now got really good data that midwives make a difference. And so in 2020, we did a study with UNFPA, WHO and the International Confederation of Midwives a modelling study looking at the impact of midwives. So if you had midwives 95% coverage, you would reduce your numbers of maternal deaths in your country in a low to middle income country by 60%. If you only had 25% coverage, it's still going to be about 50% reduction. Maternal deaths, newborn deaths, stillbirths. That started to make a real difference. So we rolled out that study the end of 2020 and then In May 2021, we launched the State of the World's Midwifery Report, which for the first time was all countries in the world. 192 countries are in that report. So for the first time, we can look at what's the impact in low-income countries, middle, high, and so many of the things are similar. So leadership is critical. Education is critical. Government advocacy is critical. It doesn't matter where you fit on the income spectrum. Bangladesh is a really interesting example. They, about four years ago, decided to fix their midwifery cadre. They'd had nurses who did a year's training, probably not very good, got sent out to the hospitals, expected to do an awful lot with nothing. This is one of the other challenges. People say, oh, we grew midwives and we put them out there and look, they didn't make any difference. We gave them one year training We sent them to a village with no transport, with no vehicle, with no drugs, with no syringes, with no mechanism to get them anywhere else. And so, of course, they can't make a difference. But if you can fix some of those things, so if you grow a midwife properly, and so it's three years of training to grow a midwife properly, you send her out into a village or a community with support, a phone, Perhaps even these days now stuff on an iPad where you can do telehealth consult with the village next door or the bigger town. And you've got a blood pressure machine, some oxytocin to stop a postpartum hemorrhage and a few drugs to manage blood pressure. Then you start to make a huge difference. And now we're equipping midwives with family planning, contraceptive skills. Contraceptive skills will save mothers' lives because they don't get pregnant again quickly. So then I think there is huge 
impact now that we can show? And COVID's helped us say, okay, now we need to make that happen faster. We can't wait another 10 years. The advances we've made in the last decade, we've actually gone backwards. So we're not going to get to 2030 sustainable development goals. We're just not in maternal health. We might get to 2040, but only if we do something now. Absolutely have to do it now to catch up. And so increasingly countries are saying, okay, let's grow midwives quickly and let's support them. There's an undeniable lesson for maternal health as a result of COVID-19. While the pandemic has eased barriers to telehealth, it's also highlighted just how crucial the role of a midwife is, especially in developing nations. The impact of midwives, of course, I can see on paper, but you and I have travelled together and I remember one small clinic in PNG we were at, which happened to have a midwife there one morning, which often wouldn't be the case when we visited. And I remember them being particularly devastated there and the midwife herself was devastated. They had a woman overnight who'd lost a baby and they were shattered, as you can imagine. Any clinic would be. And I remember you putting your hand on her arm and saying, you probably saved that woman's life last night. And it did really come down to that. If she hadn't been there, and there's every chance that midwife would not have been there, it would have been a pretty different outcome. Mm. I think she'd had twins, and the first baby was born fine, and then the second baby got stuck. It was a breach, and she couldn't get the baby out. And I remember her explaining to me exactly what she'd done. And she'd done textbook stuff. You remember we drove up a long dirt road to get to this health centre right on the top of a hill. It was in the middle of the night. There was nowhere for the midwife to go. She didn't have a functional phone. She'd run out of credit on her mobile and she did the best she could. And what we know from lots of research as well, that saving women's lives makes an enormous difference to the community. The return on investment of preventing maternal death is three to fourfold for that community. And for every child who survives, you reduce maternal mortality because what happens intuitively when you lose a baby for most women is they want to get pregnant again. And so they get pregnant quickly and so their risk of a maternal death happens again. So if you can save a baby's life, you're going to save that mother's life. And the rate of death is so huge still in a place like PNG, 80 times more likely a mother to die in PNG giving birth than a woman in Australia. We know that over 5,000 babies don't reach their first year of life. And we've seen that firsthand at places like Kokopo and Nonga Hospital. But when you do visit an amazing country like PNG, you'll see up to 20 or 30 women who are pregnant all waiting and the so-called waiting room is outside. It's just a bench. They're all sitting there in their very colourful outfits and trying to give each other support. But they've walked for hours to get there. So the gaps in their care is often months at times. Sometimes they don't even present until they're well into their pregnancy or about to give birth. Can we close the gap on some of that disparity between how we look after pregnant women in countries like Australia and what happens elsewhere? in our region? WHO guidelines are you should have eight contacts. In Australia, we have 10 or 12, probably, for each woman. 
In PNG, about 40% of women get four antenatal visits, but that's probably less now in COVID time. It's probably much less than that. And you're right, women walk for miles to get antenatal care. They queue up probably luckily in COVID time outside, but they still all queue up outside for visits. They might see a midwife. She might not be there today. She might not have come today. She might have had a family emergency. She might have gone and had some training. She might be sick. So they might have walked for two or three hours to get nobody there. When they do get a midwife, fortunately, the midwives in PNG these days are really well trained. The Australian government's really supported midwifery training in Papua New Guinea and really raised the standards hugely, which I think is a fantastic initiative and we need it to continue. We can close the gap. Even in countries like Papua New Guinea, everyone has a mobile. So an antenatal initiative would be give every woman mobile phone credit so she can talk to her midwife. And even if she just did a texting every month through that pregnancy, surely that's better than not seeing anybody for eight months and arriving late in labour or not at all for that matter. Australia's in a funny position, Australia, New Zealand, one or two other places where we're having big effects of COVID without actually having much COVID, as opposed to the US, the UK, France, Germany and so on, who have had both. Has the mentality of Australia made it worse or better or no different than having lots of COVID? I mean, clearly it's good to not have a lot of COVID for the society. Look, I think in some ways it's worse because it's not out there. You're not seeing it. And so women have certainly said in our research, there's no COVID in my state. There's no COVID in this hospital. I don't know anyone who's got COVID, but I can't have my partner with me in antenatal care. I can't have my mother visit me in the hospital. The midwives are all dolled up in full PPE and the doctors. I'm finding it hard to justify this experience, whereas particularly in countries like Italy, the US and the UK, where it's everywhere and health workers particularly were getting affected in larger numbers than in Australia. I think women felt more justified, like, I get it that we have to do this. You're only going to have this baby once. Even if you have lots of babies, you're only having this baby once. And we change that experience. It is interesting. There's a number of consequences of our success, I guess, in inverted commas like that. And what about places that are not Australia? You do a lot of work in the region and beyond. We all stress a lot about the non-COVID effects of COVID, as you've already said. And of course, maternal and child health is at the very top of the list. Pretty much 18 months in, you know, at the highest level, where is that at? So in our region, many countries, as you know, Brendan, did very well in the early time of COVID, 2020. We're now seeing the waves, particularly in our region, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, the biggest ones around, and Timor-Leste to some degree, providing maternal health services in PNG and Timor-Leste on a good day is tough. You take away all those standard services, redeploy the midwives to somewhere else or the nurses or the community health workers to do COVID testing or COVID treatment. It's a very finite workforce. So you haven't got a lot of people to play with. You haven't got pool staff that you can get in or casual staff. So we really have seen big changes in the indirect effects on disrupted services. It's really disrupted, PNG particularly. What do we need to do to try to at least mitigate this if we can't turn it around altogether? 
So I think one of the really important things that got missed early on was maintaining essential services and maternal and child health being an essential service, like as important as your COVID wards. TB would be the other one and malaria. Those are the acute services that we can't drop for anything. What happened in maternal health, though, is that maternal health experts haven't been round the table. So in many countries, there isn't a midwife, there isn't an obstetrician on the emergency response team because the emergency response team are virologists, microbiologists, epidemiologists, as they should be. But we actually need the other people as well to make sure that essential services are essential and that they keep happening and maybe in a new way, maybe out of the hospital. So a lot of people in lots of countries, but in PNG particularly, haven't gone to hospital because they're frightened. And they see in the media and it's all terrifying and they don't want to go to hospital. Do you think that's on our agenda? On the Australian authorities, I think, have been pretty impressive in their attitude to dealing with COVID in the region from very early on. Significant commitments of funds and to a degree holistic, more than just vaccines, we're going to need to strengthen health systems and so on. But I don't see them talking about what you're talking about, saying, okay, we're really worried about babies being born under this circumstance. Do you think that's on the radar or there's more that we could do in that context? I think there's always more we could do. I think the radar is pretty narrow in lots of countries. Like Fiji, in the most recent lockdown in their country, have really struggled to close the hospital. They've had to open a new maternity unit, and unit would be a generous term, but a couple of rooms down the side of the hospital have now become the labour ward, and they've had to move all of their staff So if I was a woman in the community, I'd think, what's the point of going to the hospital? There isn't anyone there. I've been put in the funny little room down the hill. I think I'll just stay at home. So that's what we've seen across the region. Experts are telling us that the pandemic will still be around in years to come. In Australia, unlike many, many other places around the world, we've mostly avoided widespread community transmission of COVID-19. But with this, we've also seen rising vaccine hesitancy. And in our region, in countries like Papua New Guinea, there's a real fear of being vaccinated. We know this from recent studies. So how safe is it for pregnant women to get vaccinated? The fear of being vaccinated in this country is high as well from different groups and we're coping with a lot of misinformation and anti-vax sentiment even in Australia. But I think the data is getting pretty clear that being vaccinated in pregnancy is a safe thing. We have guidelines in Australia saying you should get vaccinated. It doesn't matter at what stage in your pregnancy, it's all going to be good. We vaccinate women for other things in pregnancy, whooping cough, flu. We vaccinate their babies against hepatitis B. Midwives are good at vaccination. We can have this conversation. And I've been advocating that midwives have the conversation with everybody, every woman who walks through the door. Where are you up to with your COVID vaccination story? We have to make it normal care, not something weird and separate. It has to be just part of normal practice. So much talk about mums getting vaccinated or the general population. But what do we know about babies needing to be vaccinated against COVID? There's very few trials. There's a couple of trials at the moment going on, but very few of pregnant women and vaccination. So what we know is from 
the non-pregnant population. Mostly we know that children do very well and babies seem to be born with antibodies from their mother. There are many instances of babies getting COVID. We don't think in utero, so we don't think from the mother to the baby while they're pregnant. I don't know, Brendan, have you ever seen anything on vaccination of babies? No, it's not really on the radar yet because the risk-benefit equation comes out so strongly in favour of not vaccinating at the moment directly for the baby. And the same goes for young children. And actually, ethically, it's still very tricky call. There's got to be a benefit directly for the person you're vaccinating. And so that's what our very good regulatory authorities struggle with. And so at the moment, it's pretty unlikely that's going to happen. While women are officially being told that getting vaccinated is safe during pregnancy, there's still so much confusion and fear, creating a major stumbling block, especially when women are turning to social media and their friends for advice. So how has health communication fared in this pandemic? Communication's been really problematic. Even for people who are well-informed, if you go onto the many of the government websites at the moment and try and work out what you can and can't do or what you should or shouldn't do, it's been designed by committee over a long period of time and it's really hard to get your head around. We've got pregnant staff at Burnett who say to me, I can't work out what to do about vaccination. Can you just tell me? I could go and get vaccinated. But they can't work it out, even though... They work in this field, they know stuff. If you actually go looking, it's really difficult to unravel it all. Caroline, I don't think I've seen one ad with a pregnant woman who has actually spoken to other pregnant women on TV and said it's safe that they would identify with. We're doing research here looking at the communication that women seek out. So we've been doing a study on a number of social media sites actually looking at what do women look for. They're looking at, should I get vaccinated? That's the kind of number one question. And we actually, we don't have a push-button answer for them. Why is it so hard to get that answer? (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I'm a member of the College of Midwives and we're running a campaign called Don't Hesitate, Just Vaccinate to try and persuade midwives to get vaccinated. We're not even pushing it to pregnant women. A survey we recently did, still about 40% of midwives aren't going to get vaccinated, they say. That's their intention. That's a real problem. And my message to them is pregnant women don't get COVID more than non-pregnant women, but when they get COVID, they get really sick. They end up in intensive care. They end up on oxygen. They get really sick. So whatever we can do to reduce the chance that they're going to get COVID, and maybe they haven't heard the message of getting vaccinated, so they're not, but we sure can. Do you see a time where they won't be able to work in a hospital setting? Look, I've been really surprised. I, as a midwife, can't work in a hospital unless I'm vaccinated against measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B and influenza in wintertime. And I have to have my certificate to go to work. I can't understand why it's not the same for COVID. Look, I think we are learning in the developed world some of the lessons we know very well as global health workers, that having an intervention is the beginning of the solution, but it doesn't provide the solution. It doesn't mean it's going to be used by people. And we know well in the global health context that there's a science to what it takes to have a good intervention used by people. I think in the West, in the developed world, we've forgotten that. 
So it is good advertising, I agree with that, but I also think there's a science to asking the communities what it would take, a science, not just a questionnaire. For me, it's one of the missing links, social and behavioural research in general. Mm. You and I listen to the 11 o'clock press conference every morning, but we're in a minority. Most people out there don't listen to it. They don't hear what the Prime Minister or the Premier or the Chief Health Officer tells us to do today. We are really missing how to make it easy. And we need to learn some lessons from other vaccination campaigns, childhood vaccination, for example. I was talking to someone last week who said when there's an outbreak of measles in a community, she sends the vaccinators to stand at the school gate. So as children come through, you need to be vaccinated, otherwise you need to take your child home. And do you imagine what happens? Wow. They all get vaccinated Mm. because everyone wants the children to keep going to school. So of course they're not covered that morning when they've been vaccinated. But it's a really strong message about what we need to protect everybody is you need your child to be vaccinated or you need to take your child home. So why don't we have vaccinators standing in antenatal clinics? I mean, it's nice to learn, but I just feel a bit of doing would be good. We're in a rich country of knowledge and combined with the scientists and, as you say, behavioural research, and there's been no progress I'm still seeing the same silly icons and confusion and... Doctors with stethoscopes around their necks, no disrespect uh, to stethoscopes around their necks, but that's not what the community wants to see. No. No, that's quite right. I think the scale of the problem here, we have two, it's not just pregnant women, we have 20-odd percent of Australians in the vaccine hesitancy class. So a good ad campaign, you can imagine making a dent in that. I can't imagine it solving the whole lot. We need to understand what's really behind some of it. But I can't explain why. We look at France, New Zealand, UK with pretty impressive campaigns, at least from what we can see from afar, what the hesitancy is, no pun intended, but hesitancy is to doing those campaigns. I think we have a government juggling a pretty tricky set of circumstances with what vaccines they have available, and that would be a factor. But we're also pretty paternalistic, pretty top-down in how we operate. And I would include myself in that, but it's something that we need to think, is that really going to be effective? Of course it's not. My 23-year-old daughter is not going to listen to me or anyone like me. There's got to be another way of communicating. The tragedy with maternal death is that we could actually prevent almost all of them now. We know we don't need any more research. Big killers of postpartum hemorrhage, sepsis, unsafe abortion, in our country, mental health, suicide. We might not prevent all of those, but we can certainly prevent probably 80% of them now. And so we need political will, investments, on-the-ground enthusiasm and commitment to making a change. And what keeps you up at night? I mean, I think the global burden of maternal mortality keeps me up. Having been a midwife for a long time, you do take all those bad things on. Scars on your soul, we call it. Every death is a little scar that you live with, but it is there. And I just think about all those midwives out there in really tough circumstances, frightened for themselves with COVID and for their families, but also really trying to do the best for the women who come through the door. And to finish On a positive note, what actually has brought you joy during this COVID period? Lots of joy from seeing how many people can be creative and all the things that we can do that we didn't think we could. 
Even my 87-year-old mother now can FaceTime me and do Zoom. She hates it when you hit the end meeting because she said, I just, you just went, you know, which is true. That's been revolutionary that we've been able to do things that we'd never would before. For many, it's been a very tough challenge, bringing their babies into the world at such an incredible point in history. But for others, the start of an amazing journey. Will the pandemic have enduring effects on mums and their babies? Only time will tell. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Burnett Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us remind everyone how science matters. If you like this episode, please keep an eye out for the next one. Modelling COVID-19. Can we predict the future? To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.